and he's about to give a warning to these people. It's the last thing he'll say to them. Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. God always warns before he acts in judgment. If there is one thing that you can count on, it's the longevity of God's word. The same yesterday, today and tomorrow. God's word is dependable, testable, infallible. But when you read God's word, don't confuse God's acknowledgement with his approval. Hmm. Let's understand that a little bit better by joining Dr. Corbett tonight in Jeremiah chapter 44. My words will surely stand against you. It's the closing statement of Jeremiah to his people. It's, I just find it moving. I find it very sad. So let's have a look at this first verse of this particular section. Jeremiah said to all the people and all the women. You remember it's the women who have just been speaking to him. You know where we are. We're in Egypt. And we're in Egypt because the people have gone down to Egypt on the idea that if they go to Egypt, they will escape their troubles. They will escape Nebuchadnezzar. They will be able to flee any potential wrath that Nebuchadnezzar might inflict on them. And Jeremiah had warned them, don't do this. It, it, it doesn't look good where you are here in the ruins of Jerusalem, and we're just outside of Jerusalem in a place called Mizpah. But, but if you stay here, you'll be okay. God will look after you. And the people rejected Jeremiah, and they fled down into Egypt. And Jeremiah has said, you shouldn't have done this. The very thing that you're thinking that you're fleeing from is the very thing that's going to destroy you now. That's life in many people's lives that's that's how life is they do the thing that they think will give them the escape if i take this drug all my problems will be over if i just look at this on my computer screen i will escape everything that's going through my head and i'll fill it with something that will cause me to escape for a moment and it doesn't it just increases the bondage and it was the women that jeremiah addressed where he said you 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 women you you were you were doing some abominable things and the women said what are you talking about abominable things all we were doing is making little raisin cakes for the queen of heaven and offering them up to her which is just a load of rubbish they were offering their newborn babies in a potter's kiln just outside jerusalem and so here in addressing these women jeremiah said it's it, it's not just raising cakes. Don't, don't give me that. You, you, you have been practicing some vile things. He rightly says, and, and while I hold you accountable, I hold your husbands more accountable because the husband of a wife is meant to be the head of the wife, the leader, the protector, the provider, the pastor of his wife. And I hold you men ultimately accountable. You should have done this. You should have been men of God and held your wives accountable. And so that's this expression. Jeremiah said to all the people and to the, all the women, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 25, The God of Israel, you and your wives, have declared with your mouths and have fulfilled it with your hands, saying, we will surely perform our vows that we have made to make offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. 
Then confirm your vows and perform your vows. What? Jeremiah's just been rebuking them for their idolatry. Now he's saying, just go ahead and do it. Because what we're seeing is this, you're going to do it, do it. And what's actually happening here is God is acknowledging the stubbornness and the rebellion of their own hearts. And so this is where we need to be very careful as we read Scripture that we don't confuse acknowledgement with approval. Just because God acknowledges this is what happened, this is what you are going to do, doesn't mean he approves of it. So as you read Scripture and you have some smarty-pants atheist pull out a verse that has some of the most vile things happening or some of the most violent acts happening and they say, see, that's the kind of God you worship. No, it is not. The scripture describes by divine inspiration, which means it's recorded without error, some of the most vile things that happened. I mean, if you think about it, if people actually knew what was in the Bible, it would surely be kept in a brown paper bag at the top shelf at the back of the counter, not front of store. But the Probably most people haven't read it, so they don't realise this thing's full of lust, adultery, intrigue, murder, incest, rape, and shall I go on? It's, when I say full of it, I'm slightly exaggerating, but it's there. It talks about it. It describes it. Does that mean God approves of it? Not at all. And this is an example of it where Jeremiah is saying, you're going to do this, just go and do it. Go and be rebellious. I know you're going to do it, just go and do it. And so that's where we shouldn't confuse as we read through Scripture. When God acknowledges something in Scripture, we shouldn't confuse it with his approval. Jeremiah 44 verse 26. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be invoked by the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, as the Lord God lives. So there's a rebuke here that the people were using the name of God. And in this instance, we've got two very deliberate usages in the original language of two words that were used as Symbols of the name of God. So what's in a name? When God in this verse is saying, don't use my name like that. What's going on? What is in a name? You see, when you named your child, if you had a child that is, you, you probably drew on a, either, my guess is, you, you either drew on a pool of names you liked or you drew on a pool of names that have some connection to your family. What's interesting, just by the way, let me digress slightly, is we, we were, um, uh, Kim and I were preparing for a boy, and if we had a boy, we were going to call him um, probably Jeremiah, or Jeremy, or something like that, based on Jeremiah. And then our our, our um, when before we had Tyrone, uh, Kim was rather keen to use a Hungarian name for a boy, and she she'd already picked one. It was Aachen, and I'm so thankful. 
praise you, Jesus, we got a Tyrone rather than an Aachen. Because I could just imagine the, the ridicule he would have got at school with a name like that. Anyway, please don't tell Kim I said that. Um, so when we, were, when we were about to have Ruby, we, we had chosen the name Ruby because we liked the name Precious Precious Jewel, and then we chose Grace as the, the middle name. When Ruby was, was born, there were all kinds of complications, and she was in ICU and in a humidity crib, and there was health issues there from the moment she was born. And For us, Ruby was a Grace miracle child, and Ruby is a, is a precious jewel, and that was why we chose that name. In fact, we chose each of the, our children's names on the basis of the caliber of the name. When Kim was pregnant with Zoe, um, there was some complications and we'd already lost a child and, and she sought God because she, she began to have those same pains associated with losing a child and she just cried out to God and God said, you will have this child and you will name this child. This is what she, she sensed God saying to her heart, you will name this child happy and healthy. And so we did. And so Zoe is healthy life, Zoe. Zoe Asher, which is happy. Asher means happy. And so we named Zoe Asher happy life. Just remember that, Zoe. Happy. <laughs> Just want you to know it doesn't mean moody. All right. How are we doing? Anyway. All right, what's in the name? So I say, I say that some of that background, maybe you did the same with your children's names. You chose them for, for reasons that you were actually naming your child, not just giving your child a name. And, and God's name is, is the same deal. In fact, biblically, if we, as we read through the opening chapters of the Bible, they chose... They chose not, I mean, when, when Adam and Eve named their first child, what, what choices did they have? It's not like you go to a name book. It's not like you go to the family tree. It's not like you go, well, I like John. There was no John. What is a John? Anyway, so they, they had to choose names that, that reflected something of that child. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, that a person's name reflected something of their character and their identity. Today, we have people's names that have some kind of perhaps family history. You, you'll have um, you know, dairy farmers who, who, who specialised in making butter and, and, and they would make worthy butter and they became the Butterworths. And this, this kind of thing happened. So what, what is it about God's name? Well, God's name captures this identity and this character, that he is Lord, he is King, he is Creator, he is Provider, he is saviour. In fact, the name Jesus means saviour. He is redeemer. God's name means he is judge, he is guide, he is sustainer, he is forgiver. He is merciful and he is gracious. If you remember that scene in Exodus 32 and 33 where God passes by Moses and declares his name, I am the Lord, gracious and merciful, declares his name to Moses. So these are the this is what, what it means. And, and you can see these names reflect God's character. They tell us something about who he 
is. And it's worth pondering who God is. So when we talk about a name, it's not just like John or Jack or Andrew or whatever it is. It's, it's representing that person. It says in Proverbs 22 verse 1, a good name is to be chosen above wealth and riches. And it doesn't mean if you don't like your name, go and choose a different one. It's your reputation. It's, it's what people think of when they think of you. That's your name, a good name. And so when Moses brought down the law and he gave, he gave the first set of commandments, you shall have no other God before me. You shall not create a God, the second commandment. And then the third one, all in that batch, that first three batch, is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Or it's the sin of blasphemy. And this is how it reads. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And, the, and, and what we're seeing here is it's not just a matter of saying you know, something in, in anger. It's at least that, but it's not just that. It's to say this. This God who is merciful, this God who is good, this God who is a judge, a moral judge, is untrustworthy. He's unfaithful. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He's someone who breaks his own law. He's someone that you cannot depend upon. That is blasphemy. That's what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. And when people say flippant things like, oh, uh, um, that, that's, that's God's honest truth, and they know they're lying, it's a very dangerous game they're playing. Very dangerous game. Paul writing in Romans chapter 2, he says, Because you who claim to know God live in a way no different to the world, you are causing the enemies of God to blaspheme. Now what's happening here? Paul says this, You claim to be Christians, yet you lie, you cheat, you commit sexual immorality. You're no different to the world. And the world looks at you and they say, that's, that's a reflection of the God they worship. You see, when you have sex outside of marriage, you are not doing it in a committed, faithful relationship. And that reflects on the God you worship. It's like saying, I do this because the God I worship is completely unfaithful. That is blasphemy. And this was the stuff that was going on that Jeremiah is addressing now. And he's about to give a warning to these people. It's the last thing he'll say to them. And I want you to hear this, that we read in Scripture of warnings given to people. And here's the truth. God always warns before he acts in judgment. He always does it. And, and we, we could be tempted to think, well, that's just Old Testament, Pastor. That didn't happen in the New Testament. It did. Let me give you an example. Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he says, unless you repent, you will perish. And we think, oh, well, one day in eternity, judgment, then they'll perish. No, there was an actual immediacy to what he was saying. There was something that he said is about to happen because God will lift his hand off the city. 
And unless you repent and turn to me, this city will be left in ruins. And he says in Matthew chapter 24, this temple that you pride yourself in, not one stone will be left standing upon another. By the way, he's picking up on the message that Jeremiah gave when he said that. So when Jesus is using this language, he is using Jeremiah language. God always warns before he acts in judgment. I think of Ananias and Sapphira. I think of Peter calling them. This is Acts chapter 5. Did you sell the property for this and this? Be careful how you answer. <laughs> yes, we did. No, they didn't. And God judged them. They were warned. God judged. So God, I mean, thank God he warns. Thank God he warns. There's a parental tip here too, that parents, we need to... To understand that we give a warning before we act so that our children understand something of the heart of God in this as well. Verse 27. Behold, I am watching over them for disaster and not for good. All the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword, by famine, until there is an end of them. This is pretty much what Jeremiah has been saying and warning them since he was... 14, 15 years of age, and it's the same message, and here it is again, and this is the final warning, but now we're going to see a little, a little something here. And this is, what, this is something I, I want you to, to understand, because the people could, they could have <coughs> responded and thought, gee, I wonder what he means. The problem with doing that is that what, what he means is probably what he just said. It's very, very clear. And here's the problem I think that most of us have with Scripture. It's not, the, it's not the obscure parts that we have our biggest problem with. It's the clear parts. I mean, who could read of Philippians 2.14, do all things without complaining or grumbling, and go, gee, I wonder what the Greek is on that. That's a bit obscure. There's nothing obscure about it. Uh, we read the words of Jesus. Forgive those who hurt you and spitefully mistreat you. I wonder what he means. We don't have to wonder. It's very clear. It's not the obscure part. So the next time you think, gee, there's an obscure verse in the Bible, and there are because of perspective, because we're thousands of years removed from the events of Scripture, it could sound obscure. But they're not really Verse 28, let's note this. And those who escape the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, few in number. And all the remnant of Judah who came to the land of Egypt to live shall know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. Oh boy, oh boy. Oh man, if I had a time machine and I was watching this, I'd be going, wow. This is tense. This is, this is a standoff. This is gutsy. This is not Jeremiah, the 15, 16-year-old kid. This is Jeremiah, the 65, 70-ish-year-old man standing before these people with, with vigor and strength and deep, deep, deep compassion for these people. He loves these people. He's warning these people. 
Think about this. If you didn't care, you wouldn't warn. Parents, if you didn't care about your children, you wouldn't warn them. You wouldn't do anything because you just don't care. But if you care, you warn and you discipline. Think about your friends. If you really care about them and you see them going off on a track that they shouldn't go on and you really care about them, you'll say something. What if it jeopardises your friendship? If you really care about them, you'll say it anyway. And you'll figure out a way to say it so that it has the greatest chance of being heard and received. And I think Jeremiah's trying to do that here. This is what's going on here. And Wow, he's, he's thrown down the gauntlet. He, this is the, sort of the final thing. This is it. I'm telling you, of all the people standing before me right now, every man, every man here will die. You will not return. Some of you women will. Some of you women will, but you will be few in number. Of the hundreds of people, maybe thousand or two that were there, every man shall die and some women shall return. I want you to think about that. What has Jeremiah just said about his own fate? He's going to die. He's going to die. In a moment we're going to see that his secretary, Baruch, was also a man. And he realises... Wait a minute. Did you just say every man here is going to die? Jeremiah, I'm a man. And that's the next chapter. And we'll look at that next Sunday night. And Jeremiah says, this will be the test. This will be the test. If what I've said comes to pass, then you know everything I've told you is true. Boy, that is like putting your life into your message. There is no halfway right here. There is no might be, could be. It's clear whether you're right or whether you're wrong. And this is what Jeremiah is doing. This shall be the sign. Note that word, this shall be the sign to you, declares the Lord, that I will punish you in this place in order that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for harm. Hmm. And verse 30. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies and into the hand of those who seek his life, as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who was his enemy and sought his life. Now, I want you to just consider what Jeremiah's just done here. He's provided a test, and this is something that I think we need to appreciate about God's word. God has provided many ways to test the truthfulness of his word. Many ways. Here's one of them. I think you can test God's word historically. I think you can test God's word scientifically. But I think this one's a powerful one. You can test God's word personally. And it goes like this, Psalm 34, verse 8. It says, O taste and see 
that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Here's the thing. You might think, I don't know if this Christianity deal is true. I don't know if the God of the Bible is the real God. Then I encourage you, test it. That's it, just test it. And, and in this instance, because we're talking about something that's going to happen inside you, that test is a prayer. That test is a prayer that, that where you, you might cry out, God, if you're real, show me. That might be your first step in testing these claims. God, if you're really the God of the Bible that this preacher's talking about, then show me who you are. Show me who you are. That's how you can test and taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, as we bring this to a close, I want you to think through these people who are in this situation. They're listening to Jeremiah. What, what if of the hundreds or maybe a thousand or so that are there, what if there was someone, what if there was someone, maybe a woman who's, who's going, oh my goodness, what have I done? She's prostituted herself. She's, she's violated that thing which God says every woman should not violate. And there she is. She's hearing Jeremiah. And she knows she's guilty of the things that Jeremiah has said. And there she is. And she doesn't want to perish. She doesn't want to die. And everyone's watching her. And she's encouraged others to do the same as her. And so she looks like a ringleader. But on the inside, something's going on. What might God be doing in someone like that who's listening to Jeremiah right now? The, the reason Jeremiah was giving this word is so that people like that could turn to God. And the reason it's recorded in Scripture today is that for us who get involved, sometimes we do things in darkness, hidden from the view of others. Sometimes we do things on our computers that we hope to God no one finds out about. And we're caught, we're trapped. We've done something and we're ashamed of it. What's the way out? You see, the world says, once you've burnt that bridge, there's no going back. And I've got to tell you, God builds new bridges. He makes a way back. You are not a bridge and a journey and a trek away from God. You're just one step. And the Bible uses the word translate, which is a beautiful word. And it doesn't mean translate like in language. It means take from here and take from here and takes over an infinitely infinite, impassable gap from here to here. Death to life. You can't trek it. You can't journey it. You can't take one step toward it. You go from here to here by God's grace. And it all begins with a prayer. And here's the New Testament hope. No matter what you've done, no matter who you've done it with, how many times you've done it, who knows about it, who doesn't know about it, God can forgive you. If that was all I had to say today, that's pretty good news. The psalmist declares, and we looked at this in our Bible study group this week as we were looking at 1 Peter the, um, chapter 1 and verses 3 to 5 where he talks about we praise God for our salvation. And the psalmist, who's aware of God's forgiveness, has, has psalm after psalm where it says, I worship you with all my heart, 
for what you've done for me. How many of us get what God has done for us? Because if you did, you probably worship God with all your heart too. To be forgiven of sin, to be cleansed of guilt, to be set free from shame. That's what God offers. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It's not just a memory verse. It's a life verse for the believer. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. That's his name. Just, that's his name. To forgive, that's his name. Our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we have failed. We have sinned. Lord, I have done things I am deeply ashamed of and I come to you now and I ask you to forgive me based on the promise of this word, based on your name. I come to you, I humble myself, have your way in my life. Make me, break me, mould me, shake me, have your way in me. I want to serve you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 God bless you. Note that in Scripture, when God moves in judgment, it's never a surprise. He always precedes judgment with warning. We need to heed the warnings God has laid down for us in Scripture. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Do not seek great things for yourself. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, My Words Will Surely Stand Against You, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For regular updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.